0: Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law & Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys I'm Fred Rockefort, and I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week
1: we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant,
0: the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests.
1: Today, we are joined by Douglas Brush, an information security executive with over 26 years of entrepreneurship and professional technology experience. He is a globally recognized expert in cybersecurity, incident response, digital forensics, and information governance. In addition to serving as a CISO and leading enterprise security assessments, Douglas has conducted hundreds of investigations involving hacking, data breaches, trade secret theft, employee malfeasance, and various other legal and compliance issues. He also serves as a federally court-appointed special master and neutral expert in high-profile litigation matters involving privacy, security, and e-discovery. Currently, he is at Splunk, where he works with Fortune 500 organizations to improve their security operations and reduce business risk from cyber attacks. He is also the founder and host of Cybersecurity Interviews, a popular information security podcast. Doug, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Doug, let's get things started by having you tell us how you became an expert in cybersecurity and what is it that you like and dislike about the industry?
2: Yeah, it's funny, I guess, you know, being an expert, it's, uh, it's one of those that I, I never I had hoped to become. It's one of those that just happens with age and time, I, su- I suppose, because it's uh, it's one of those, you start doing it long enough, and I guess people uh, start calling you an expert, whether you like it or not. Uh, but it's it was really one of those things where I'd started with information technology in the 90s. And at that point, In the early 90s, in particular, um, you know, I'm coming out of high school. I'm wanting to do more with technology and computers. But at that time, and particularly where I was in New York State and, and about an hour and a half north of New York City in the Hudson Valley region in poughkeepsie new york which has been called ibm country big blue country it was really the epicenter for a lot of ibm's mainframe business and what they were shipping out globally and you know really from one end of the hudson all the way up to the the other all the way up in in vermont you know it's really this whole corridor of technology but it was very focused on mainframe technology and at that time i was you know a a computer hacker i was a kid i was getting online with things like CompuServe and prodigy at the time you know early internet and and taking apart computers and rebuilding them constantly, troubleshooting them for friends, family. And at that time, there was just really no path for me to get into anything that was the types of computer, I would say computer engineering, computer operations that exist today, as far as degrees. Everything computer science-based then was very Cobalt-based in programming and mainframes. And I was like, I do not want to do that, particularly when I saw a market growing with things like windows PCs and the internet really kind of come into fruition. I said, you know, this is really going to be more of a, an area. So there really wasn't a a path for me at that point. So I kind of hung out my shingle. I took a, took a chance with some of the college savings I had and, and started my own computer consulting firm, serving individuals and small businesses in the Hudson Valley region, doing networking and repairs. And eventually that kind of led into a lot of things in the yeah, I would say over the course of about five years into the early 2000s, of doing a lot of networking, network engineering. And there's a natural progression of that, of doing security as I started working with more enterprise and, and much larger companies at the time, um, where I was supporting them by going in and building out networks and having to secure them for a very short periods of time as they were doing conferences and other types of meetings. So I get, you know, it was kind of an inherent part of what I was doing. And it was always really something that I found interesting. You know, when the computer, uh, security part of it kind of came about. I was always, again, back in the 90s, early 2000s, always following the famous hackers that were out there, like the Kevin Mitnicks and, and these other folks that were at the time were evolving into this industry that was kind of on the other side of the law. You know, it really wasn't a something that was even formalized when people were doing some kind of the offensive testing and things and research. So it's really a, still kind of a gray area. So it really waited till it, it kind of formalized and. Evolved until it was something that I became uh, more you know, decided. I really want to get back to those kind of roots of really problem solving, and I think that's the the one thing that drew me into information security was there's always a problem to solve. It's always some type of issue to unpack and understand. So I actually got called into a legal matter uh, by a friend of mine that was doing audiovisual forensics so he was going in and taking audio files and video files and scrubbing them and seeing you know where they can be cleaned up to be brought in as evidence in federal and civil uh, federal cases both in civil and criminal courts and he said you know we got this computer would you mind taking a look at it do some forensics on it and write a report sure at the time i I, this was like a perfect segue to something I was trying to do was reinvent myself with security and, and information security and computer forensics. So I latched onto that and I did this whole report and investigation of this computer and how it was recording time for this particular set of events that was uh, a video recording, so it was a DVR system, and how it was recording things. And it set a timeline that 16 other experts on both sides were kind of using to validate the series of events. And when I looked at it, I could see that the time recorded on it was incorrect and wrote this whole report and really fundamentally changed the course of that litigation and what other folks were interpreting it for their evidentiary kind of needs. And I was really passionate about it. I thought this is so cool and really wanted to make that a full-time thing. So I started my own uh, company at that time, the digital forensic group. And that was based in New York City and I got more cases and it really kind of grew and and then evolved from doing more of the forensics that was supporting litigation to doing um, hacking investigations and other types of things that really kind of encompass the whole thing of, you know, we talk about information security and risk management. So the legal components, the compliance components, operational components, and really look sort of look at things more holistically and got to work on a a number of interesting cases in in the legal arena. A lot of things that were involved with data breaches and taking a lot of those lessons learned and building out security programs by seeing, you know, what kind of works and what doesn't when the proverbial crap hits the fan, whether it's a, you know, a litigation investigation or whether it's a a data breach, you know, there's some event that causes everybody to kind of scramble around and have to build a timeline. And so I took a lot of that those lessons learned and started bringing to more of the proactive side where I would go in and work with organizations to build out their security programs and even act as a CISO in a number of those organizations to kind of guide their overall strategy. So you look at things strategically and tactically and how to build their programs, which kind of went through a couple iterations of companies doing that, that were intrapreneur kind of operations and, and eventually got to talk to the folks at Splunk about a year ago and decided to come over here to kind of Continue to do that in a much, uh, you know, much larger scale.
1: It's interesting. You you mentioned a couple of things that I th- I thought were fascinating. One is the parallels that I haven't ever considered between the uh, the cybersecurity world, where you have uh, you know former hackers coming out of the woodwork and and now you know turning their skills to say legal ends. Uh, because Fred and I do quite a bit of cannabis work at our law firm, and so that's the realm that we play in as well, where we're still early on in the industry where a lot of the professionals you know even uh, executive level folks who are in uh, public companies have uh, a, a bit of a checkered past and so it, it's very interesting to uh, to think about uh, the way uh, industry comes out of out of the shadows a bit to to gain more legitimacy as the and as the, as the laws and regulations mature and create a space for them
2: oh definitely you know and that's been a really strong story arc i think of computer security because you know, Particularly as the internet grew, it was one of those things where we unleashed it to the masses without, I think, fully appreciating the risk that it brought to businesses and individuals. It allowed people to communicate at unprecedented levels, but with that, there wasn't a really thought of you know, what can go wrong. And so to test those theories, people have to kind of do them. They have to go through those exercises and those tabletops and actually stress the system a little bit. And there really wasn't a framework to do with that early on. And it it, it created a lot of issues where people are like, well, if I guess I can do it and nobody else can understand it, this is research. And people are like, well, no, you're now breaking into systems that's beyond research. And it became a very kind of gray area. But a lot of those methodologies that people then took um, to say, hey, look, I'm not the bad guy doing this and intent and intent became the key but here's what i was able to do you need to patch these holes in the systems to prevent these types of things from happening and whether it's a computer system a process you know whether things like social engineering and training people how not to give out things when somebody calls them and asks them for a password stress testing those systems became incredibly important and now become part of what we do as regular you know almost there's it's funny to see things that when people say hey you know you need an annual pen test or an Offensive hacking exercise uh, conducted as part of a business agreement or part of a regulation, whereas you know, 20 years ago it was unheard of, and then people who did do that were the ones actually, in fact, getting arrested.
1: That of course reminds me of all of my cyber-related incidents uh, have something to do with Hollywood, right? The, the movie Sneakers was probably one of the first movies I ever saw with Robert Redford, and and they had both, uh, you know, cyber component to that to that movie as well as uh, you know, kind of a, a real breaking and entering. Uh, physical space scenario, right? It just a lot of fun. When I was, I don't know how old I was when I saw it. I'm sure I was 10 years old or less when I saw that.
2: Yeah, that that movie, uh, War Games, were, were kind of very much uh, part of my my canon in history of, of of seeing that kind of play out, and that was always something I I wanted to do.
1: So another question, uh, taking this to an international level, are information systems Basically, the same across the world, or are there significant differences in the way um, you know hacking cybersecurity uh, protection mechanisms are in place in you know in China, in Africa, in in the US, South America?
2: You know, overall, there I would say the systems themselves there's a level of standards, um, but that's just the frame you know, kind of the framework. And if you say, okay, well, is a house the same in China as a house in the United States? Yes. But there might be different codes and regulations that go around to how that's built or how it's used. And so that, I think that's, that's where the more of the nuances is, is in actually in the use, the way things are communicated, how the systems are uh, hooked up, what type of information stored on them for how long, you know, those types of things then on a global scale play very differently for how the systems are ultimately used, and certainly much more of a challenge now in, in global economies, where you know people might have operations in many different countries, and then how do you design systems that connect and talk to each other um, across those those you know <laughs> virtual and physical boundaries, but uh, also can communicate and operate internally as well? So that's that's become more and more of a challenge as we you know, globalize much of the information.
1: So let's talk about global legal frameworks then. Um, what are you aware of uh, in the world that is being used right now, you know, say a, a supranational level, national levels to address cybersecurity? Because I think everyone who does business is concerned about, uh, you know, about their cybersecurity at one level or another, even if they're not, say, collecting, uh, you know, a lot of information that might make them subject to other uh, data security laws that we'll talk about in a bit.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of it, There, you know, there's some... I would say uh, standards, let's say, you know, so you have things like ISO 27001 and 02, which is kind of the standards and implementation of particular frameworks that say, you know, here are the types of things that we look at or consider as part of a risk management framework that, sets a, a level that you can measure yourself to and there's other ones that are mo- less international and certainly things like NIST 800 which is a US based one that's that's not necessarily used outside of the United States um and there's some other ones so there's the ones that help set the standard they're not uh, you know I would say they're they're not regulated in that sense where somebody in a compliance body is saying hey thou must have this type of um Framework in place, it's more going to be about the underlying data privacy, about how that information is stored, transmitted, um, and ultimately expunged, uh, and then that falls more into the data privacy side, which again becomes this kind of amorphous thing when you look at compliance, data privacy, data security, information security. They're all parts of this kind of you know multi-dimensional thing that have different approaches to dealing with you know the risks around them when needed.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about data privacy right now. The European Union's uh, GDPR, that's the General Data Protection Regulation, um, and California's CCPA, that's the California Consumer Privacy Act. These are the biggest drivers of international data privacy concerns for, for companies that collect consumer data. So in broad terms, what should international companies know about GDPR and CCPA? More, more broadly, um, what are some best practices that, that companies can adopt when it comes to cybersecurity? This is a bit of a hypothetical question, but, but just to, to get a conversation going, is it possible for a business or a government to be 100% cyber secure?
2: No, it's, it's like saying you're going to be perfectly healthy. You can do a lot of things to mitigate risks in layers in different areas. You know, I can eat healthy, I can exercise, I can sleep well, I can use my seatbelt when I drive my car, I can avoid dangerous situations. So there's a lot of risk mitigation I can put in my life in various different areas to hopefully extend my life as, as, as long as I can, uh, for the things I can control. But there's obviously going to be things that I can't control and that's, that's going to happen in... IT systems as well. So you can't be completely perfect, but I think what's important for organizations to do is to better understand and really what I you know, really how they make money. And that's one thing I ask when I go into organizations. Like, what, you know, what keeps the lights on? You know, what are the key critical business functions that you know, make money for you guys? And how do you support that? And what are the underlying, therefore, information and technology systems that support that? And how is that staffed? And I kind of look at it from that perspective, and then building out that kind of infrastructure map to say, okay, well, here are the kind of keys to the castle as far as the critical systems, and then finding out where the important data has to be, you know, what's the type of data that brings value and do that data taxonomy, say, this is something that, you know, we need for business. And, you know, it's it's such an important piece of what we do. However, does that data have any kind of compliance regulations around it? And it could be things like healthcare. It could be HIPAA regulations in the United States. It could be uh, marketing consumer data that could be affected by uh, CCPA. It could be, you know, a European data subject, which, affects by GDPR. So it's then really kind of mapping out once you know what your infrastructure is going to look like and how this critical information is going to move around, what's that taxonomy and compliance regulations that fall around that? And then treat that with a level of uh, care and due diligence. Because ultimately what you want to be able to do, you know, when you face regulation scrutiny and whether there has been a data security incident or whether there's just an inquiry and you're getting audited, you want to be able to show that you're doing what you can and what are the reasonable efforts that you're, you're putting forth, you know, would somebody in a reasonable state of mind make the same type of efforts to protect this data and really understand what the risks are. And, look at it in that frame that you can really say, okay, well, we have to treat this data a little differently. Maybe we have to put other types of technical safeguards around it. Maybe there's particular human resource training only for that data. We'll keep it on just that system and just that country and train the people that touch it around that regulation. And then if anybody comes and asks, we can say, look, we did all the things that we could to our best of our ability to protect the sensitivity of that information and make sure it's cordoned off. So really, it's having to look at things in more bite sizes In specific areas, as opposed to saying, how are we going to make our entire organization perfectly secure? That's just not realistic. You really have to focus on the the most critical areas that carry the highest amount of risks and build safeguards around that particular set of technology and information.
1: So since you're involved in the legal framework to some degree, what advice do you have for lawyers who are drafting contracts around these issues? Right. If, if I uh, have a, I mean, this is a very real scenario for a lot of us who do business transactions where we're you know, our clients contracting with someone who a company that's probably going to be dealing with their sensitive data. Um, you know, what are kinds of terms that you've seen or been discussed, you know, maybe in the cases you've been involved in where, where the issue hinged on, well, who's, who really, um, whose responsibility was it to take care of this risk who was supposed to mitigate that risk or where do we I, that's what I do all day long in my business contracts is figure out where the risk lines are and push as much as I can to the other party than than my client
2: the amount of times I've spent dealing with unlimited liability caps in contracts it's, it's scary <laughs> you guys probably see that all the time too because it's and I think that's that's you know, I'm kind of laughing at it, but this part of the problem is people don't know. They're like, well, gosh, who's going to assume the liability? Because we don't know what's going to happen with this information. My encouragement on that is to really have ongoing and continued discussions and early on. So with the legal teams and both inside counsel and outside counsel, talk to the technology teams, talk to procurement, vendor management, and really be involved in the risk process as far as rating the risk of this type of information and then putting the appropriate types of legal safeguards around it. You know, and by no means am I I a lawyer, that's that's you guys. But, you know, I definitely, like I said, I deal with a lot of these contracts and it's really just talking about, you know, what's what's fair and reasonable um, in protecting that information. And then say, well, look, if you're going to put some liability caps around the types of uh, deal that you're getting into with this data, then I want to know what, what are the appropriate safeguards that you're, you're using. Is there a compliance or risk management framework that you guys adhere to? And this is where, you know, again, they're not silver bullets. These risk management frameworks, like an ISO 27001 certification or SOC two certification, which is kind of different, but they're nice to have when you're saying, Hey, look, we really do take data integrity, information security seriously. Here are the types of standards and compliance that we're going to, and then understanding what those mitigation steps are going to be if there is a potential leakage of that data um, and, and what's the safeguards and really kind of build that into understanding in, in, in the negotiation process of what's that data lifecycle, how it's protected. That's the one thing I encourage attorneys to do. It's like, I don't, don't expect them to be the, the experts on these standards, but ask the fair and reasonable questions. Say, what are you doing to protect this data? And you know how are you going to respond if there is and when there is a breach? And I think that's one other thing that I would say that I think a lot of folks assume. It's like, it's not just protected. We, we all assume that, but it's if there is data exposure, how fast are you going to spin up a response and put out this fire? And, and that's another thing to really kind of focus on because things are going to happen. Um, and what you don't want is having the FBI or some third party law enforcement agency saying, hey, we just found all your data on the internet, it came from a vendor. That's the last way you want to be notified. You want to be notified from that vendor say, hey, we just discovered there was a security incident. We got on it within 24 hours. Here's a story we can tell you. You know, The, the risks and the limits of liability hopefully should be understood at that point. But you really just have to understand what the response plan is like
1: and how effective is cyber insurance then in in those scenarios right i mean is it is it prohibitively expensive can you get a, a decent amount of coverage for a, a data breach incident
2: you can and and i you know i've worked heavily within that space for several several years and probably with insurance carriers covered about probably about 500 different data security incidents 30 to 40% of them were notifiable data breaches and had those companies not had some type of risk transference in the form of cyber insurance, I, I would I don't, can't even think of how many of those companies would even be in business now. I mean, it would have been devastating. The amount of costs for having just forensic providers kind of come in and do their work at several hundred dollars an hour, data breach counsel, um, time loss, reputational harm, all those things add up in cost of responding to a, a, a you know, an incident and not having those things well laid out and at least plan for financially in ad, in advance is going to be, it's be really painful. So a lot of organizations that engage with cyber insurance, you know, the nice thing that they get is a team. Um, so, you know, you have these panel providers that should there be something that happens, you call up your, um, you know, you, you call up your insurance company and say, Hey, look, you know, we, we think we have a, a security incident. Um, they say, hey, you know, call these data breach attorneys, get things under privilege right away, um, because that's another thing that you might that folks might miss when they're doing uh, data breach investigations or, or data incident investigations is not having the appropriate outside counsel to cover things under privilege, so you can have you know kind of frank conversations about what's happening. Um, you know, you get this, get that wrapped up with the appropriate legal counsel. And you bring in the right forensic providers, and it just has this kind of playbook that already comes out when you use a. A cyber carrier, um, not having that, you know, you, you'd probably spend days, if not weeks, trying to just even get to the what we would do in the first couple of hours. Should somebody say, "Hey, we know we're opening up a claim."
1: Fascinating. So let's look at the international side of this again. I love, uh, I love the concept of hackers in Russia and China. You know, pounding on their keyboards, trying to breach everything in the world. I mean, it, it, intellectually, it's fun to think about. The reality is, it's scary, right? I mean, so when you're thinking about the global world of, you know, black hat, white hat hackers, um, you know, country of origin training goals for cyber hacking activities, I mean, how should we kind of make sense of all of uh, of all of the potential hackers that are out there, you know, domestic and foreign?
2: Well, it's important to understand their motivations. Um, know to, and if we were talking about, you know, state-sponsored hackers and whether those be APT groups or advanced persistent threats or other types of, um, you know, groups that are working there, it's, you know, kind of really understanding their tactics, techniques and procedures or TTPs. There's human behavior behind these actions, right? There's somebody that's behind those keyboards. They're usually trained within certain groups. They have certain... You know for lack of a better word, kind of poker tells. like you, you once you see them operate a couple of times, they fall into a cadence and a pattern that you can kind of recognize who they're from and um, how they're executing their their particular attacks. Added with that, understanding their motivation. So if I'm you know broad-based terms, a lot of the Russian and Eastern European groups um, I would say I would even defy that even further. So some of the Eastern European groups that are more focused on cyber crime, Going after things in a very different manner than when you would even the Russians that might be doing state sponsored disinformation campaigns and finding information to then, uh, potentially, you know. Cloud an election, so those are just two different, very motivations that are going through from similar types of teams and similar geographies, but doing things very differently and for different uh, means. Same things, you know. When you look at the state-sponsored um, attack groups out of China, they're looking for intellectual property. They're n- not necessarily interested in commit committing uh, fraud, so their actions are going to be very different, and they might be very quiet and much harder to detect because they're trying to really blend in with with information streams that are going around. Extra trade information, intellectual property, might not be huge data dumps. Um, so you you might they there can be a little bit harder to detect. Or again, you know, compared to like say an Eastern European hacker that might just be going in, two-week campaign, get in, steal some biggest amounts of information, they get stopped, they move on. If not, they launch a ransomware attack, demand $1.2 million in Bitcoin and move on. So it's understanding those cadence, the way that they they move become important. Outside of that, the attributions, you know, what that means is is, is difficult. Um, you know, there's there's still a lot of gray area in, in the community of people saying, well, does it really matter? And some it does, some it doesn't, because it really hasn't been a strong enforcement action against these groups. You know, recently we saw where, you know, DOJ indicted some of the, you know, Russian state-sponsored groups. That comes with a mixed bag of information. Yes, those people can be captured and extradited should they leave Russia to kind of, Constrains them a little bit. However, as a retaliatory tactic, from that is we're not immune to you know our own actions as well. Um, you know, we have the NSA has their own attack groups that are going out and doing information gathering and more of an Osnet type of activity, but. Those folks are known within all the communities as well, and some of those folks have been outed. So you know, when we start indicting people and threatening to arrest them, the reaction might be, well, okay, we're going to start naming people within the NSA that we know who they are and you know, putting their name out there. So it kind of comes with a, a double-edged sword once we start getting to attribution and retaliation.
1: So uh, from just kind of a general community security standpoint, should we be worried about hackers taking down public infrastructure or making, you know, air traffic control uh, unsafe? Is that more of a, uh, something that would come to play in a war, you know, cold or hot war scenario, uh, as opposed to just kind of day-to-day stuff that we'll have to deal with?
2: Well, again, it comes down to that that motivation. And there, there's definitely, I would say, there's enough of a concern from certain groups that would want to do more of a, let's say, a, a you know, a terrorist, let's say, activity of taking down a power grid or nuclear power plant, making things go awry, you know, you might see those out of you know, your typical terrorist groups that that might have done more of kinetic types of things of streetside bombings, IEDs, things like that. You know, they might say, okay, well if we can weaponize some of our actions in the cyberspace, you know, in the cyber theory, can we attack and do those? So that, that'd be more of the concern. Now, there's typically been a gap there where the capabilities and the uh, Intent of those individuals were separated. They're narrowing, which concerns me, is that you now have groups, you have more of these attack hits and more knowledge about how to attack these types of infrastructure publicly available so where these groups might spin up a campaign and go after that. I would say it's less likely from your more Cold War state sponsored actors from China or Russia because look they need our computers on. They start turning off our computers. <laughs> They're in those systems for months if not years. They're not going to want to lose the power to that. So it might not be a very strong motivation for them to do that. And you know outside of that what does it really get them? You know they take down a power system, they do damage to a regional area of the United States disrupt things, you know, our actions might be kinetic. We might come back at them and there could be sanctions or it could be, you know, physical war. I mean, so it's, they might not want to kick that hornet's nest. So it's, there is a, l- a little bit of a, uh, you know, you know, kind of careful, <laughs> I would say careful. And I'm air quoting that where you can't see, but you know, we're each side being a little bit careful about how the, how far they want to step over those boundaries uh, just because of the retaliation.
0: Doug, the other day I was listening to a podcast that, <clears throat> Among other things, touched upon deep fakes. You know the um, fake audio, fake images, and I was quite surprised to hear about the, the levels of sophistication that have been reached in terms of of being able to to generate um, this kind of, of of material. And there is obviously a a connection there to to, to cybersecurity. Obviously, if, if if you as a as a as a producer of, of of these fakes, can can get access to real uh, audio samples or images. It uh, presumably helps you with with the, the generation of the of the deep fakes. But um, I, I bring this up to to ask you about issues that are, or, or I should say, new issues or, or or novel issues that are keeping cybersecurity professionals such as yourself awake. Uh, at night obviously there's some of the things that 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 keep you awake are are things that have been around for for a long time. But in terms of emerging threats, um, could, can you tell us about some of the newer challenges that you are facing
2: yeah, and in general, I mean that's always going to be a problem. Technology evolves and, and changes, and with that becomes and once we say, I to even mean, step that back a little bit, even say not only is the technology change, but this use uses change. You know, people might use the technology different. So you kinda of combine those factors and all of a sudden, um, new vulnerabilities open up, new risks come out, and possibly new attack vectors. So there's always that risk with old technology and new technology being used in different ways to kind of ex- exploit and manipulate systems for some kind of game and definitely things like deep fakes have some concern I still think they're a little bit kind of cutting edge and where we're gonna probably see them being used more often is in disinformation campaigns so where you're gonna have maybe state-sponsored activities against a country where they're trying to upset an election or change kind of behaviors of individuals you know that is will probably be where we'll see more of that. Um, you know, there could be other ways I can think of using it as an attack vector. However, I can also think of easier ways to do the same things as far as impersonating things to kind of gain that level of confidence in social engineering. And um, that's kind of where I was thinking with that. But I don't know if it would be as effective. But in general, you know, it's it's. The times change as well, and we've now seen things like cloud technology, which has been there now for numbers a you know, number of years, but we're seeing obviously a greater adoption, I would say, in the last year with things like COVID going on, where there's a greater shift. So all of a sudden, it's like where you know we've been in cybersecurity, we just want to say, hey, come on, let's measure twice, cut once. Let's plan things out. Often what happens in these kind of planning and adoption and implementation of these different technologies, um, it happens under the gun. And that's where I think we've seen right now with COVID is all of a sudden where, yeah, we've been saying for years, you guys are going to have to make a cloud play. You're going to have to move things into these different types of infrastructures, put around the appropriate controls. Give yourself plenty of time to plan. And all of a sudden, companies are like, we have to do it. It's the middle of March. All of our offices are shut down. We're doing this massive shift. And then they're trying to do a technology change, a behavior change, and then wrap security around it all at the same time. And those are the types of things that worry me. And I quite frankly think we don't know all the repercussions of that yet. It's still too early um and as people then shift to going back in the offices what's that going to mean is that going to then introduce new threats um because the the, the behaviors and, and work patterns are going to change so it's it's that's the types of things that, that worry me the most is like how do we continue to think about these upcoming changes in the way people interact with the technology as well as the underlying tech itself
1: doug it's been fascinating to have you on the podcast uh, we appreciate you bringing your your viewpoint certainly your gravitas with your long-running podcast history. Uh, we really appreciate that. And uh, we look forward to ho- hopefully catching up with you again at some point in the future to discuss more of these issues. Um, we, we like to close our podcast by asking our guests for some recommendations on how we can get smarter and our audience can learn more, uh, either within the cybersecurity realm or, or outside. So anything that you've read or listened to or watched lately that, that you would recommend, uh, we'd love to hear your, your recommendations.
2: Yeah, I would say overall, I'm kind of going back to the COVID thing <laughs> that we're all dealing with. Right now, a lot of organizations that have put on conferences that used to be, you know, you would go and attend, have put a lot of this information out there now free. Um, so whether it's something that, you know, we talked about things in the cyber insurance space and a number of those conferences um, have gone online and become much more accessible, definitely pick up those things. And net diligence has been a great kind of set of ongoing talk tracks and community community engagement within cyber and legal um, advise in the same way you know the, those are two organizations I work pretty heavily with within the uh, cyber insurance and legal community and so for listeners out there that fall into that definitely check both those those groups out, and they 've done quite a bit now online, but also different things, um, you know like Splunk, we just had our dot com twenty this week, and it was all online, and it was all free. a number of organizations do that too it 's just a ton of free content out there now, and it could probably be a little bit more of a fire hose than most people want, but definitely look at what 's out there as far as these free conferences that are going online um, that you, again you would have normally had to pay thousands of dollars to get to thousands of dollars to get in the door you can now do at home. do not lose that. Um, that, that advantage now of this type of information sharing, definitely get out there and, and look at those types of conferences that are now shifted to being virtual
1: and, and gather, gather that information. Great. Thank you. And Fred, what do you have for us this week?
0: I have two recommendations today. The first one is that podcast to which I alluded a little bit earlier. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's part of Sam Harris's making sense uh, podcast uh, episode number 220, The Information Apocalypse, a conversation with Nina Schick. Um, and they, they talk about a whole bunch of things, but the, the they lead with the, the deep fakes. Uh, so that was very interesting. And on a related note, um, second article, or sorry, second recommendation is an article from GQ, um, The Mystery of the Immaculate Concussion and it if you've been following the um, the story of the mystery attacks on American diplomats in, in Cuba and other places, and in fact, in, in, during one of our recent podcasts, I think Jonathan, you you brought that up uh, tangentially. So basically, this article uh, pick, picks up on that story and makes some some further speculation uh, in, in about. What might have happened, and and overall, it, it presents a pretty damning indictment of what Russia, in particular, is up to uh, in, in terms of its um, harassment of, of U.S. diplomats and 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 uh, CIA agents. So check it out: the mystery of the immaculate concussion by Julia Yaffe, and it's. Um, October 20th, um, but you can find it on their website. So, Jonathan, what about you? I stayed with the
1: tech bent on our episode today, and this article from uh, Nikkei Asia is called Inside the U.S. Campaign to Cut China Out of the Tech Supply Chain. Uh, It's quite a mouthful, but very interesting read. It really lays bare how much uh, American diplomatic pressure is being put on uh, countries uh, and companies that are doing business with China and they're basically being given an ultimatum in the guise of, "Hi, we're from the U.S. government. We want to make sure you understand how our export control laws work, right?" And so, um, it, it's very interesting perspective from uh, these companies in Asia, especially Taiwan. That's what this article focuses on uh, on how they're dealing and how they're interpreting these uh, very, uh, not very veiled threats from the U.S. government, uh, you know, about about doing business with China for the long term. Um, and so it, it raises the question of, will non-Chinese companies eventually be targeted by U.S. sanctions if they continue to do business with China? You know, Are they going to be blacklisted in the same way that uh, the U.S. has added you know, 70 Chinese companies to our blacklists in the last 12 months? So interesting. Um, and the other thing that, that I thought was very interesting that it raised is, um, and I think Steve Dickinson, uh, one of our co-bloggers on the China Law blog, has raised this issue that, Uh, You know, Taiwan, everyone says, "Okay, we're not doing business with China. We're doing business with Taiwan, you know, Taiwan semiconductor companies. uh, But he says that, uh, you know, Taiwan is already so riddled with Chinese malware. Right. All the all the Taiwanese companies have already been breached to the nth degree. And so, you know, taking a back step into Taiwan and saying, oh, we're doing business with Taiwan, not China now. It's really fundamentally no different um, and that's not true from a diplomatic perspective, but from a, an information security perspective, it, it may be uh, may be no different. So, interesting read. Uh, recommend it for anyone who's interested. Uh, Doug, want to thank you again for being our guest today. We appreciate you and and wish you well. And we're going to catch up with you uh, on your podcast. I'd love to tune in there and get deeper into the cybersecurity realm.
2: Brad Jonathan, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you.
1: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business and tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.